What's worse than dropping your motorcycle during your license test? Well, having to ask the tester to show you how to pick it up. And with a rough start like that, one could be forgiven for just calling it quits. But Marina Matthew, she doesn't give up that easy. So with a little help from her friends, she eventually did become a rider. And then, through that, was introduced to another rider named Paul Nibs. And from the first meeting, Paul saw something in Marina that just kept him coming back. But it wasn't as easy as just asking her out. He created a a mini marketing campaign of Just Say Yes to finally convince her to take a chance on him. It worked. She said yes. The two walked in hand in hand to a BMW dealership and Marina stopped and looked puzzled at two F700 GSs parked in the middle of the showroom floor. With her name on one and Paul's on the other. Paul turned to her, bent down on one knee, looked into Marina's eyes and said, let's get married and travel the world. Just say yes. Marina looked back at him and said, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Sam Manikin, Terry Borden, Sandy Borden, Jack Borden, Graham Field, Austin Vince, Jason Spafford, Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel, Ed March, Glenn Hitstead, Dr. Greg W. Crazy, Bar, Michelle Lampier, Tiffany Coates, Herbert Schmuck, Zoe Cano, Nathan Millward, Glenn Hoskins, Joe Ross, Jeremy Craker, Simon Thomas, Lisa Thomas, Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Wick, Seth Simon, Elizabeth Martin, Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. So I'm Marina Matthew. 
I'm currently riding my motorcycle, I think around the world. So far it's been across the Americas. I've previously worked in uh, pharmaceuticals. I've been a professional all my life and um, yeah, now I'm travelling. I'm Paul. Same, same kind of gig, looking to uh, ride around wherever we can go. Used to work in IT, but now gleefully unemployed. I'm on my way. When I rise into the sky on a plane and fly away, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. When I'm cruising in a cab through a city up for grabs, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Where are you guys sitting right now? On a couch. <laughs> We're sitting on a couch in a very dear friend's home in South Africa. So we've popped across to South Africa for a month um, as, a, as an interim break between our travels uh, from the Americas and we're heading off to Europe next. Now, Paul, when did you start riding motorcycles? I rode when I was a kid, um, when I was a young guy, and then I took a long break and then I got back into it probably in... 2006, something in that order. So a fair few years, but all on the road and all, you know, not too far from home sort of thing. And no off-road riding. It's, it's all been on-road riding? Did a little bit. Morena and I went to Cambodia. So I was, there's a bit of a trial by fire. I'd never been on a, on a dirt bike before. And we, we rode through Cambodia up to the, the temples in Siem Reap which was a well, wonderful experience and it was a spectacular kind of countryside. It was, you know, like awesome. I came away with a fractured leg, but um, <laughs> but aside from that, it was great. So that was my trial, yeah. <laughs> aside from that, that's good. <laughs> well, well, first, Marina, your, your story about getting your motorcycle license is, is kind of interesting. Why did you want to get a motorcycle license to begin with? Well, I'd been riding dirt bikes as a kid, you know, on the farm here in South Africa and in the bush, and I wasn't comfortable being pillion, and I just decided I know how to ride a bike, but I just don't have my license. Um, It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. Um, Riding on road is an entirely different ballgame to to riding off-road in the bush, so my first... um, my first attempt at getting my license, I actually dropped my bike during the test. And I recall, you know, all my my um, friends and, and members of staff were waiting to hear that I get my license. And I had to message them that evening, what's worse than dropping your bike during your test? Having to ask the examiner to show you how to pick it up. <laughs> So, yeah, it was a trial by fire and I didn't take to riding on the road and in traffic as readily as, as I would have hoped. A lot of people will say the off-road riding is much more difficult than the street riding. So I, I guess it's wherever you come from. You were comfortable in the dirt and the street seemed to be very scary to you. But that's hilarious, though. What's worse than dropping your bike during your test, having to ask the examiner to pick it up? I mean, that is fantastic. What did the examiner say? Well, he just said, do not collect your $200, just go straight home. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing at the time? What were you working at? What, what was my job? What mm-hmm. was I? So I was working as a, a sales manager in pharmaceuticals at the time. 
And you, as you mentioned, you had trouble passing your test. You had a little trouble getting used to the bike on the road. You had your friends help you out and, and they sort of yeah. took you under their wing, didn't they? Uh, if it wasn't for the mentors, I mean, Ian Hales, Janine Lysett, you know, I mention them by name because if it wasn't for their support and encouragement, their humor, they just said, you know, they taught me about riding with other bikers, learning from other bikers, not trying to do it alone, um, not being scared of the fact that, yeah, you fall. It's just part of biking. Um, you know, they, they were just remarkable in terms of their encouragement. And, yeah, I mean, from there, I, I didn't look back. And incidentally, Ian encouraged me to join the motorcycle club, and that's actually where I met Paul. <laughs> so not only did it support my motorcycling uh, experience, uh, it certainly became a life experience. So they, they did an awful lot for you. Yeah. Much, much more than just the, <laughs> the motorcycle. They changed your life really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, if you were to ask Paul about the first day that he saw me, he, I'm sure he can describe to you in, in, in great detail how all these experienced bikers watched me arriving for the, the motorcycle meet and they all looked at each other and said, what Paul? As a friend of mine said, Hello, there's a wobbler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I wobbled my way into his life. And um, incidentally, that group of friends have become incredibly dear. But, um, you know, they, they did initiate the rookie. And, um, yeah, I've lived to tell the tale. And I understand that, you know, I, I don't know if I should be saying this because everybody's going to hear this, but I understand that Paul had a lot of trouble getting you to actually commit to go out with him. Just an initial date. <laughs> yeah, she was a bit like Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, persistence, 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 right? <laughs> that seems to be the, the way to, to a woman's heart. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a very independent spirit and, um, you know, once bitten, twice shy and all the rest, and I just kept saying no, no, no. And um, Paul, Paul just started saying, what's wrong with one date? Just say yes. And, um, yeah, one date, I actually had a lot of fun. And then it was, how about another date? Just say yes. And, yeah, essentially Paul's taught me that instead of saying no to things, maybe just say yes to things and, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And, yeah, we haven't looked back. And um, <laughs> I ended up saying yes to, to a lot more things um, beyond that first date. Um, about a year later, I said yes to us buying our first home together. I've also learned how to challenge Paul about the things he needs to say yes about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a great lesson in that. Um, I think we shouldn't be as afraid as we are. Um, it's, it's quite a good reminder. Why did Paul not look like a, like a good bet for you to begin with? What was it about him that you just didn't like? <laughs> um, I don't think it was so much about Paul A, he looked 10 years younger than, than myself um, And uh, Only 10 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I just wasn't in the right space um, mm. Yeah, it was more about it, it wasn't about Paul, it was just about Yeah And I'm glad his, his curiosity didn't wane And I'm I'm grateful that that he, he persevered because um, that may have been the biggest mistake 
for me is is yeah not getting to eventually saying yes and as you just alluded to a minute ago is just say yes is it's a bit of a mantra for you guys now mm very much so yeah yeah very much so and i think one thing about our relationship is we we do constantly challenge each other and you know we do we do look each other in the eye and say well why not um why are we not saying yes to this um why shouldn't we be doing this? Um, and I think this this journey is, is 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 an example of that. Isn't there all kinds of reasons, though? I mean, I mean, you know, if you ask the average person, why shouldn't you go off and do something crazy, different, you know, away from the yeah. norm? Don't they automatically have dozens of answers, endless answers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you overcome? Of, there's there's there aren't that many answers actually. Most of people's reluctance to do things revolves around their fear. Whatever that fear is, whether that's a fear of not getting a job when they're older or fear of this or fear of that, but it always comes down to fear, right? And, you know, one of the things about fear is it's mixed in with courage, right? Courage is just having fear, but just doing it anyway. And I think that's the thing that people have to, you know, look to overcome if they want to go and do something a bit different. Because at the end of the day, life can be very short and things can often be out of your own control. But fundamentally, we all get back to doing what we normally do once once all of the fun's over, right? So, you know, we don't see it as a it's a life-changing thing. You know, it's not something that one should be fearful of. And if I was to say, if somebody said to me, well, how can you do these things? You say, well, you just, you just have to take a chance, just like you do when you did with anything, right? Yeah, and I think what, when we first met, one thing we realized that we had in common was you know, a sense of adventure and, you know, I kept talking about I want to have my gap year, I want to have my gap year and, you know, my children have heard that all through their lives and Paul kept saying he's got an adventure up his sleeve and so we had that in common and then we reached a point where we realised, well, actually Paul sat and did the maths and showed me, look, it's possible, you know, financially and then we sort of ran out of reasons to not go other than giving up our jobs, packing up our house, you know, and selling assets like cars and what have you. And we, we just looked at each other and said, we are able to do something we really want to. If we now don't have the courage to just say yes, we'd be fools. And once you say it out loud, you can't back out really, can you? <laughs> Well, that's true. The, the public declaration. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that for, for these type of things, things that you want yeah. to do. But leaving your job, because you said oh, the only things that were left to leave your job, that's often the biggest thing. I mean, especially as we get older, yes. you know, the thought of going back and, and being a job hunter at, at this point in life is yeah. um, somewhat unnerving. Yeah. So that that's a huge decision to leave the job. Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, Paul and I have different stories. He might like to share his first, but for me, yeah, that that was huge. That was that was my biggest obstacle um, by far. Paul, yeah, one of the things I would say about this is that you know, like, if you take time out from work, you're really just taking a role on that's different from the role you're in. You know, when you go and speak to an employer, they often give you the same kind of, you know, platitude questions like where do you see yourself in five years and all these kind of things that, that occur in these, these situations. And, you know, the truth of the matter is is that, well, particularly in Australia anyway where we live, 
tenure at a job is probably only two years or three years. People move around all the time. So I would just turn around and say, well, look, I've just been doing another role for the last two years and it just happens to have been on two wheels. So I think it's just a matter of where your headspace is. I mean, it's all about, life's all about opportunity, right? You can, if you get the opportunity, you can get back in. But, you know, with reference to your earlier question about fear, yeah, people are afraid to take those chances. Now, okay, we could end up unemployed, but, you know, we'll we'll deal with that on the day. I mean, that just comes, one of the other things I've learned on this trip is that it makes no sense to try and over plan things because mm. they generally don't work out the way you plan them anyway. And also it, it just, you know, messes with your head when you think about destinations and timings and everything else. We'll go back, we'll get work and it won't be a problem. You almost set yourself up for failure when you overplan, don't you? Because you, you have this um, imagined outcome and you plan it all and you work through all the details. And then when it doesn't work out, it just feels like a failure. It feels like, oh, well, you know, the, the whole thing fell apart. Absolutely. Aside from the fact yeah. you wasted your time on it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know at the start of our journey, you know, we had all these plans and we had prepped ourselves down to the last minute and then... When we got to Canada and the weather was just not doing what it was supposed to, we were absolutely horrified <laughs> because our plans suddenly were just, you know, dashed. So we learned very, very early on to just take it one day at a time and then it'll be one week at a time. And our journey just unfolded as opposed to having this mapped out agenda and then feeling like a failure. Um, and we've, we've had, yeah, the most incredible adventure just literally day by day, day by day. And and we actually don't enjoy, we don't enjoy planning too far ahead. (laughs) No, because I was thinking about, you know, how in the old days you would have to plan things because the world was more, mm, what's the word? The, the world required that you engaged with it a bit in a more structured way. You know, like if you wanted an aeroplane ticket, you had to go an agent to book it for you and then they would send your tickets in the post and all that kind of stuff. And now we live in a world where I'm pretty confident if I went to the airport right now, I could get to London, you know. So I don't need to, you know, engage the world in, in, in such a structured way. You can just kind of go, well, what what's it look like today? And I think if you overplan things, it creates two problems for you. One, as to your point, you know, there's a good chance your plans won't come together because everybody else involved in your plan doesn't know what their what their roles are. That's something I learned in sales. <laughs> you know, because I was in IT sales, and they would say, "Well, you, you've got to put yourself on the other side of the table." Not everybody, not everybody knows what um, what the agenda is and what their roles are. So that's what plans are like. And second of all, you do learn that. If you plan things too much, even if it's next week, your whole week is focused around that that point in time, and so therefore yeah. you lose focus on what you're doing today. And much as it creates a sort of a laissez-faire attitude to life, it seems to be more relaxing to just go, "Well, let's just go to the airport." <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Your first adventure, um, Paul. I, I guess it's Paul's idea. This was the the adventure that maybe that he that he had planned when you guys met. But the first adventure was to go off and do this this mainly off road trip again, where you, you mentioned earlier where you broke your leg. Can you talk about that? I'd say my actual first first adventure was to move to Australia because I just bought a one way ticket and went there and never left. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. 
<laughs> That's why uh, Morena said to me, oh, I had another adventure up my sleeve because this was the, the second great adventure, right? But the, uh, yeah, the trip to Cambodia was really my own fault. I was getting, um, getting cocky and I was riding around like I thought I'd mastered something I hadn't and then found my leg in a hole. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, and in fact, the Cambodia trip was actually my idea. And again, because I was comfortable on dirt bikes, whereas Paul wasn't. And for me, it was a little bit of a test, you know, with this bloke come on a trip like this with me. And um, yeah, he did, you know, with, with no off-road experience. And um, so I think that was an example of Paul out of his comfort zone. But well, we finally got to the temples in Siem Reap and I just had to go around the temples being supported by a tuk-tuk driver and a, and a crutch that was just a little bit too short <laughs> because all the people in Cambodia are only, bless their socks, are only like five feet high. And so I was just, you know, the, the, the crutches were too short. So and then when I got back to Australia, I found out I had um, two hairline fractures and, uh, and a bunch of other bruises and... And injuries, but there's all good fun. Oh, I see. You you didn't actually know it was a break at the time. No, no. No. But um, that was quite a pivotal trip for us, A, you know, with respect to our relationship. You know, that's when I decided I was in love with this man and, you know, just seeing the compassion that Paul had for the Cambodian people, um, how he behaved in a really stressful situation, um, you know, on so many levels, I just f- fell in love with Paul. You know, he he bought a home for um, a destitute family in Cambodia. Um, he really put himself out there. And then, secondly, we we both realised how a we could travel together, um, and anyone who's travelled will know that sometimes the going gets tough and, and you're actually arguing over who gets to sit on the toilet next. Um, you know, it gets really personal and really tough. And if if you can handle those kind of things and, you know, still come through strong for it, um, th- th- that's incredible. So, yeah, firstly, for our relationship, it was fantastic. And then secondly, we, we realized, hey, we want to do more of this. We, we are loving traveling by motorcycle. Um, so that cemented two things for us, really. Um, that, that, that was a very pivotal time for us. You skipped right over very quickly there, buying a house for somebody. I, I know I'm from Canada. We don't do that a lot. As a yeah. matter of fact, I've never heard anybody do that before. <laughs> so yeah. I'm sort of curious, how do you, Paul, how do you just come across buying a house for somebody? Uh, well, first we've got to define house. So <laughs> the people in Cambodia live in kind of, they live basically on stilts with their houses made out of old bits of corrugated iron and cardboard that they can find from places. And reeds. So the, uh, there was a guy that we met as a result of doing the trip. He, he's the, like the tour owner and he runs a little foundation where, you know, he goes around and builds these houses for Cambodian families. They're, it's Global Village Housing. Yeah, it's called Global Village Housing. And, you know, the houses aren't grandiose and for a few thousand dollars they, they put one up and they put your name on it and, and a family gets to live in it. And it's got a little little solar panel and a light and, you know, it's just better than, you know, what they find themselves in normally, which is pretty, pretty pretty bad 
I mean, we've seen, I've seen a fair amount of poverty, so it's, you know, it wasn't a surprise to me that these people lived this way. So you just help where you can, really. Mm. But for me, it was just so meaningful that the first home we bought together, so, you know, both our names are on that home, it was a gift to someone else in need. And I think that that's who we are as people. We both we both look out for well, a, each other and we look out for others and it was it was a very strong um what's the word it just knit us together in terms of what our true values are you know we don't value things we value moments we value experiences and when paul did that i just i just knew i was with the right man in 2016 paul proposed to you can you tell that story Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was no ring involved. All my girlfriends were very quick to point out. Um, so we'd been talking about doing this journey uh, on motorcycles and, you know, we'd been chatting for quite some time and initially it was a five-year plan. And anyway, long story short, it wasn't unusual for us to go looking at motorcycles. And on a week weekend, Paul said, hey, let's go and look at some bikes. And when we walked into the showroom, there were these two brand new BMWs, one with my name on it and one with Paul's name on it. And he, he said, marry me and let's travel the world. Just say yes. And um, yeah, that was his marriage proposal with, with a motorcycle, not a ring. Um, I, did, I did make sure the ring... It came along later. <laughs> can't do can't do anything with a ring. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was pretty magic. Um, and so bikes. I mean, bikes brought us together. Uh, bikes were part of our. Uh, those bikes were an integral part of our wedding ceremony. Um, we're officially still on honeymoon. We have to keep reminding ourselves because um, you know we started this journey shortly after we got married. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, we've, we are knitted through our bikes. It was April 1st, I think 2017 when you guys set off, what that's was the right. plan? That was it. <laughs> <laughs> set off. That's it. It's a good plan. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, almost. I mean, we, we headed for Vancouver and, um, the plan was to, to head North to, to Alaska um, but yeah, the weather in Canada was not kind to us. So, how, how do you mean? What time of year did you arrive? Um, well, probably the within the first week of April, because we stopped over in Hawaii for a day or two. So we got to Vancouver within the first week in April, and um, the snowstorms were just yeah. We we got as far as Whistler and um, hung around, hung around for a month, and eventually decided to head south. Even some of the places like Jasper and places, they, they, they were inaccessible by road when we were there. We had a bit of a grand plan. It's fascinating, actually, because when we first, it comes back to this idea of planning. See, when people do this trip, they have this great idea. They're going to ride from Alaska to Patagonia. And I think at some point along the way, you realize that you just don't, there's no opportunity to do everything all the time, you know. You've got to pick and choose what you're going to do and sometimes your plans change. And I said to Morena reasonably early in on the trip that, you know, you need to decide whether you're doing something just because everyone else does it or whether you're just going on your own journey. 
and that you should just enjoy what you're doing. And if that means you don't get to take a picture with a snowman or take a picture with a penguin, uh, then then so be it, right? You've got to enjoy what you're doing. It's all about the bike ride, right? Mm. What is the purpose of travel for you guys? Is it about riding your motorcycles in different areas? Is it about it's the different cultures? Are you after, you know, looking at the places you've seen or you heard about that you want to visit? No, it's more about people, I think. You know, that's why I wasn't too focused on whether we would get to Alaska or not, because for me it was kind of like, yeah, if I met a nice guy that was, that you know, that, that ran a bear sanctuary someplace, that'd be great. It's all about the people you meet on the way and it's all about looking at the human spirit and seeing how essentially all humans want the same thing regardless of you know what they look like or how they speak and to me that was you know a bit of a revelation because you know I'm I've been to various places in Asia before and they've been very functional trips so to go on a trip like this where you have to engage with people about buying petrol or where can I get a tire you know, they're, they're, you know, it gives you a different perspective on, on life. And so for me, it was all about, you know, if I meet a funny guy in a truck telling me a funny story, that's made my day. It doesn't really matter where it is. You know, it's it's, it's all about the, the people experience. Yeah, it's definitely been about the people and, and the cultural experience. And, you know, the, the journey has, has not been about where we've been as much as, who we've encountered and what they've taught us or, or you know, what, what we've experienced whilst we've been with them, um, what they've challenged us with or what they've made us think about. Um, and there's some bonkers ones. <laughs> if you bonker, bonkers Canadians. <laughs> no, I find that hard to believe. I really do. <laughs> Before you left, you said that you sort of had a question. Is the world a place with mainly bad people and a few good people or mainly good people and a few bad people. Was that a big question for you? I mean, was that something before you guys left that you were sort of unsure of or did you just leave thinking you knew the answer? Well, you know, the world survives today on shock and awe. You know, it's all about the, the world serving you up outrage in the media. You know, like if you're on Facebook or anything like that, it's all about sh- selling you outrage. And so, of course, you, you've got to decide for yourself, well, do I believe all that outrage or am I going to go somewhere and find that, you know, people are just getting on with their days and just want the same thing everyone else does, you know? And that's the thing that I have found, you know, and it causes me to reflect when I see something and you go, yeah, okay, like, they just want us to feel outraged. I mean, there's a lot of who are at the moment where they just, whether people call things fake news and that's quite a fascinating term because... You know, although that's been slightly politicised, at the end of the day, it is a little bit like that, you know, where somebody catches only 30 seconds of what somebody says. It's a little out of context. You know, it's a one-off or something or or there's rage involved. And the next thing you know, people are afraid to go places, you know. Mm. People would say, oh, you can't go to Mexico because it's full of, you know, narcotic gangs and you can't go here because the people are unfriendly and you can't do this and you can't do that. And you go... Well, I don't believe that's all the people, you know. Mm. I just believe that's some of the people. And the question is, like, how many of the people? And my discovery is that a very, very tiny microscopic percentage. Mm. And the rest of the people are just just getting on with their lives, you know. Mm. Drinking tequila <laughs> and just having a good time pretty much. 
Yeah, we've we've come away with such 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 a strong sense of humanity is alive and well, and you know it's just not loud enough. <laughs> you know the, the the bad in the media is too loud, um, but humanity is alive and well, and um, you know we've encountered it again and again and again. Um, you know in the most unexpected places, and it's really made us think a lot about our own humanity. You know, for example, in Latin America, we'd be staying with people, complete strangers would invite us into their home. And, you know, A, we'd we'd have to trust that, yeah, our gut feel says this is okay. But then we'd discover that they've given up their main bedroom for us as, as guests. And, you know, Paul and I spoke about this and said, well, wow, if, if we invited a stranger into our home, we'd We'd put them in a spare room, probably on a blow-up mattress. And, you know, it's just taught us so much about humanity and, and generosity and um, trust. Um, it, we, we've just been in awe of, of, of the kindness of complete strangers. Um, it's really made us think long and hard about who will we go back to Australia as? How will we behave? Have you found that the socioeconomic status of a person or a family uh, affects or at least um, correlates with the treatment that you get when you arrive? We, ironically, we've discovered, although I don't know how scientific it is, but, you know, generally we've, we've found that the richer people are, the worse off they are. That, that's been our, our conclusion, is that the, the kindness of spirit seems to be um, it's there in everyone, but people that are wealthier, they have that as a as a barrier. You know, like I often say that, you know, if you live in a westernized country and you're a lawyer and your BMW breaks down, you just call roadside service. If you live in Peru and your car and the wheel falls off your car, all your mates come out and help you fix it. And it's a, and so you tend to get more of a, a community feeling mm. in areas where people aren't so well off. And that dissolves a little more as you get into the Western style of environment, Western style of life. Is that an independence thing, do you think? Or is it a, a fear of loss, you know, as we become um, just better off? To, and I'm saying better off as in financially. Is it a fear, do you think, that we we're afraid of losing something or being taken advantage of? I don't know. It's difficult to say. I think people, people that are in the Western world, I think they become culturally isolated. Because one of the other things we discovered is that not only is it about wealth, it's just about the environment that you're in, like a wealthier environment, because there are um, disenfranchised people that live in a wealthy world, right? And those people seem to be more disenfranchised than poorer people living in a poor world, if that makes sense. Some of the troubles that we have seen on the way have been, you know, sad souls that are in big cities where... You know, there shouldn't be those problems. And yet poorer people living in poorer places, they just seem to be able to, you know, get by. And they're, they're struggling, clearly. But, mm. you know, if you fall off your bike, they'll run out and help you and pick it up, you know, whereas mm. I guess in the Western world, you know, they're, they're potentially on drugs or alcohol or, you know, they're, they're isolated, I guess. Mm. I don't know why that is, but it's an observation. Mm. It's something we've we've debated so much amongst ourselves and you know a, a buddhist saying has often come to mind for us that you know a rich man 
is is unhappy because he's scared of losing his wealth and a poor man is unhappy because you know he doesn't have anything you know it's this whole thing of fear of loss um you know that you mentioned so we suspect there's an element of that but um you know we were just astounded how in you know some very wealthy cities is where we saw the homelessness and where we saw uh, beggars whereas in really really poor poor places um it's almost like there's a strong sense of community and everyone's in the same boat and everyone just looks after everyone and um ubuntu you know which is an african term just essentially meaning that people look out for each other and i don't know maybe it comes from everyone being in the same boat um I'm certainly becoming aware that wealth could be isolating because you're too independent. And there's actually a joy in learning to accept. And I mean, that's something we've had to deal with because, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly fiercely independent and it's easier to make my own way. But learning to accept help or learning to accept you know, an offer of something. That um, does change you, actually. Absolutely. I always say learn to graciously accept because I think in in our world if somebody says, oh, why don't you come over and stay, you know, I think typically our first response is, oh, that's okay, I don't want to put you out to any trouble or, you know, don't worry about it, we'll make a will, we'll sort ourselves out or blah, blah, blah. And one thing I've learned is if somebody says, do you want to come and stay over for the evening and we'll have a barbecue, I just go, well, yeah, for sure because... You know, you learn to you need to learn to graciously accept because the other person is making a genuine offer. And if you try and back out of it because you think that you don't want to put them to any trouble, really, what you're saying to them is, "No, I don't want your offer." And it's just about perspectives, right? You know, you're sort of denying them the, the pleasure of of having you. That's exactly it. You're denying them the pleasure of of hosting you because we all love to host people. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's like Morena was saying about how people give up their beds. One of the guys that gave up his bed was a, had had a stroke, you know, like the the poor guy could hardly climb the stairs or anything. And we, we found out that he'd given his bed up for us to sleep in. And we we had no idea. And, you know. Yeah. So that was quite, um, quite a, uh, an eye opening moment, but yeah. Learn to graciously accept. I think that's the thing we all need to do. Because yeah, we, we often forget that there is pleasure on the other side. That's the whole reason that someone mm. wants to do something most times mm. is because mm. they're going to feel good just to doing exactly. something for another person. But you mentioned independence. You know, we're very independent in the Western world. And I think that is a huge part in my mind of why uh, we tend to get uh, maybe just less outgoing and, and we don't want to connect with new people as much because mm. you move into a neighborhood now, you don't need your neighbors anymore. You make mm. your money and you pay for your services and you say, oh, I don't care about the neighbor. Whereas, mm. you know, if you went back many years, you would want to fit in. Your your goal, as soon as you arrived, as would your new neighbors do, everyone would want to get together and meet and let's make mm. a friend here. Let's make an ally sort of thing. It's very true. We had a quite a funny situation recently where, long story short, we were trying to do some maintenance work back home in our absence but we needed some neighbors to be involved. And one of the neighbors messaged us and said, well, let's meet up next week. And Paul said, uh, do you know we've been away for a year? 
Um, <laughs> and that was just such an, a reminder wow. to us that what kind of life have we been living, you know, for that to happen. And we've really vowed that, you know, the sense of community that we experienced in Latin America is something we want to always carry with us. You know, people know their neighbors, they are there for each other, they know what's happening, they party together. Um, you know, that's something we, we really want to always carry with us. Um, it was quite an eye-opener for us. We're going to take just a two-minute break and be right back, but stick around because there's a lot more. There's some really funny stories coming up. Okay, maybe you've been putting it off, but luckily you still may have a chance. A chance to attend one of the biggest overlanding events this year, and that's Overland Expo West, May 18 to 20th, 2018. Now you need to move fast though, because here's the thing. As I'm speaking, there are only a handful, and I mean a handful, of Overland Experience moto tickets left to get. Now, as you're listening to me, so are thousands of other people. They're doing the same thing. So don't walk. You want to run to your computer because these tickets are only available online. www.overlandexpo.com. And there's going to be tons of things to see and do at Overland Expo. And I doubt you're going to be able to capture it all, but there's plenty for everyone. They've got training, presentations, seminars. They've got over a hundred, uh, sorry, 325 exhibitors and over 175 specialized classes, hundreds of experts in many areas. Sam Manicom is going to be there actually. And so, or loads of other travelers. They're going to be answering questions and speaking about what they've learned and teaching things, disseminating knowledge. It's just a great place for so much, including meeting other people that are interested in the, in the same things we are. You can register for the Overland Experience. You can get a weekend pass with camping or a day pass, but it's only available online. You have to get your tickets online. www.overlandexpo.com and make sure when you're talking with them, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Traction and grip will determine your experience on a motorcycle. And I'm not just talking about tires. If you ride in the dirt, then controlling your bike means having the correct connection or grip between your body and the machine. And those foot pegs are a major connection point between the two. Quality foot pegs, like the ones IMS products makes, give you the confidence in knowing that you have grip on the bike. Like you have when you're standing on the pegs, maybe climbing a steep hill or even sitting negotiating some loose dirt, the pegs are key. And a good peg is not just a shiny piece of metal with it's a, a wider platform. Quality design pegs are engineered to keep your foot pivoting correctly and allow proper access for the foot controls. And IMS ADV pegs have been designed to shed mud and dirt that tends to collect in many pegs. And that can be a real shock when you're riding along and your foot all of a sudden slides off your plugged peg. I have IMS pegs on my bike and I've had them in some really good thick gooey mud and never have I even thought about my foot sliding around. They just don't. IMS Products has a full line of adventure pegs from the rally pegs to the ADV1s and the ADV2s, which are quite large platforms. Drop by their website or give them a call or an email and ask about um, your bike and what it will do for you. And when you do, please drop our name. Tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.imsproducts.com. 
You guys um, survived an earthquake in Mexico. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it survived a bit, you know. It rattled around a bit. But <laughs> 8.1, that's, that's a pretty good earthquake. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I was pretty terrified, I must admit. Um, Paul's the calm one when it comes to those kind of things. Um, we'd had quite an interesting day leading up to the earthquake where we'd been on a tour with a tour guide who was very, very um, strict and he wanted to make sure that after each tour we had to be back at the bus on time and ready to go. But at each point the bus driver would go missing and long story short, um, the bus driver would come running along half-dressed, shoes in one hand, shirt in the other with some excuse about helping a friend and it was just one of these most bizarre days during which the tour guide um, had too much tequila and jumped off the bus. Um, we then uh, got we then got abandoned by the bus driver during a teacher strike in Oaxaca City, and we had to find our way back via Google Maps. During which the heavens opened and there was this torrential rain. So we arrived back to our B&B, um, you know, everything was flooded, we were soaked, we were sorting out all our motorbike gear, eventually got to bed at about half past 11, and then slightly before midnight, the earth started to move. <laughs> um, what do you mean, earth started to move? What happened? Well, well, my instinct, you know, I was reading, Paul was asleep, and my instinct was to turn to him and ask him what he was doing. And um, then I realized, well, no, there's something more going on here. And literally, it's, it, it sounded like a train approaching from the distance, and the rumbling just got louder and louder and louder, and everything was shaking. The things were toppling off the fridge, things were flying off the table. Um, uh, yeah, it was, and it was really, really loud. Um, I mean, we realized quite quickly, well, we just assumed, you know, this is, this is an earthquake. Um, we had a bit of an altercation or not an argument about what we should do because I wanted to run out and Paul was like, no, you can't run outside. Um, you know, and he was calmly finding passports and keys. Um, I must say, I, I, I couldn't think straight uh, under the circumstances. But what amazed us most is that the earthquake died down, and before we could even really realize what had happened, the first message came through from a friend, actually Ian Hales, saying, are you guys all right? And then the second message from my girlfriend um, in New Zealand, Larry, are you all right? Through social media, people knew there had been an earthquake in Mexico before we even really had registered ourselves what had just happened. And that was such a lesson for us in social media and, um, yeah, <laughs> how connected we are in this world. Um, I think it's just made us really reflective of the power of media. Um, you know, we, we've used it in a very positive way to prepare for our trip by networking extensively with with bikers who've previously done the trip that we were looking to do, 
you know, we've stayed very closely connected to bikers either ahead of us or, or following us. Um, you know, social media has been very, very positive for us. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, we were amazed at how fast bad news traveled. <laughs> Marina, you've been riding at this point, not, not an awfully long time. You're riding a fairly big bike now, uh, the 700. So at the point that, you know, you're in Mexico, how are you feeling riding this bike? Um, the bike was lowered. So I, uh, Paul can give you all the details. He helped with getting it all sorted out. So the bike was lowered um, with, you know, lowered suspension. And then um, I also put a lowered seat on it. So I managed to gain about six centimeters. So that enabled me to at least have the balls of my feet on the ground as opposed to my tippy toes. So I think for me, what I really just had to come to terms with was it's okay to fall because, you know, when you reach that tipping point and the spike is going over, uh, my instinct was still to fight it and try and keep the bike upright. And most, I mean, most falls are, are slow falls. They, you know, slow rides, sharp turns, uh, cambers, you know, so it's not a dangerous situation by any means. Um, it just really bruises your ego. <laughs> so <laughs> I've just had to learn, you know what, that's actually okay. <laughs> just do it, toughen up. <laughs> so, I mean, Paul and I joke because um, he's, his traffic camera on his bike has captured all my falls and, um, you know, we've created a bit of a medley of that. But on the occasion that he fell, I was very quick with the camera, <laughs> making sure I captured it all. Not not always to good effect, um, but yeah, you got to just laugh about it and say, hey, but it's taught me that anything's possible. Um, when, when, when Paul presented that bike, with the marriage proposal, I, I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed that first night because I couldn't even ride that bike home. And I said to Paul, how am I going to ride around the world with you? I can't even ride this bike home. Um, we had a very, very um, stressful evening of yeah contemplation and uh, brainstorming. Long story short, I woke up in the morning, I said, I'm riding that bike, we're not stopping for breakfast, um, there's a McDonald's a couple of kilometres down the road, we'll, we'll ride to there, if I make it, you may buy me some breakfast, and then we'll discuss the next kilometre. And that day, I rode about 150 kilometres, um, without incident, and yeah, um, I just learned one kilometre at a time. You just focus on what you can here and now. And yeah, that bike has got just over 40,000 kilometers on the clock now. And um, yeah, it's a great feeling, <laughs> a really great feeling. I thought it was interesting. You, you said that your, your bike has 40, both bikes have about 40,000 kilometers on it right now. And the yeah. circumference of the world is 40,075 kilometers. You mean you couldn't yeah. just knock off the other 75 before the interview? <laughs> I mean, or even just fudge it. We're talking 75 here. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, they say it's the last 75 that counts, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yes, it's the one that puts you over. Uh, you, you guys have had all kinds of, you know, adventures as you're doing this because you've been swimming with sharks and you've been paragliding. Yeah. And, um, and and obviously the earthquake didn't shake you up all that bad because you camped on the side of an active volcano. Who does that? Yeah. Well, it was on my bucket list, so the volcano was there. It just seemed like the thing to do, so. Really? That's, just, that's sort of like bungee jumping. You know, you jump off, you get to live because the bungee straps will pull you back. And that's what you're hoping there is you get to camp on the active volcano and live. Is that the thrill? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bungee jump, that's for sure. The, but, wait, um, wait a second, volcano. Paul. You're, you're camping on the side of an active <laughs> volcano and you think bungee jumping's worse? Well, we camped on the side where there was a bit of grass. So we were told that uh, if the volcano was to erupt and it had done frequently that it throws the rocks the other way so I was I was comfortable with that yeah <laughs> who, it told was you, really... who told you that <laughs> the guy selling the tours right. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was a very interesting experience um uh, Paul and I have been doing some volunteering with the Muskoka Foundation and um we were chosen as catalyst travelers and we've been volunteering throughout Latin America basically from Mexico downwards um, with some partner organizations and one of the partners um, was this tour company in Nicaragua and they did various things and one of the things they did was these um, hikes up the volcano and camping on the side of the volcano so it, it, it was part of our you know working with them getting to know them um, it, it was the most spectacular spectacular experience you know, uh, sitting around the campfire and just hearing the, that roar of, of the volcano, constant, constant roar. It's like, it's like the roar of the ocean when huge waves crash on rocks, but it, it doesn't stop. It's just constant. And, um, you know, a couple of times through the evening, Paul and I would just walk away from the campfire and just stand there in, in absolute awe because, you know, in the moonlight we could just see the silhouette and just, we didn't even speak. We just stood there taking it all in. Um, and the next morning we hiked up to one of the, the, the sort of mountains close by and looked down on it or back at it. It was just magical, absolutely magical. How have your bikes been over this 40,000 kilometers? Pretty good. Like, you know, I'm not going to do any advertisements for BMW here, but... Um, <laughs> they've been fantastic. <laughs> but they've been spectacular, really. We had uh, just had wheel bearings go, which um, ironically was, was kind of good in a way. It's, it's a bit of a long story with a lot of shaggy dogs in it, but fundamentally we, we ended up going back to Guatemala City on our first run into Guatemala City, we bumped into a chap who was turned out to be the president of the Guatemalan BMW club and he pulled us over on the side of the road as he was riding through town and he said, oh, I'm Ricardo, I'm the president of the BMW club in Guatemala, welcome to Guatemala and if there's anything you need, give me a call. So we ended up actually calling him because the wheel bearings went on Morena's bike and when we got back to Guatemala City, he called in a few favours and got our bikes got the bike back up and fixed on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock in the afternoon and an hour later they'd all rallied around and fixed it, which was fabulous. Having learnt the lesson of the wheel bearings, I then bought some spares and in Colombia, in a slightly less 
organised fashion, some American friends um, banged my wheel bearings out with a hammer. In the <laughs> middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we, just, we just whacked them back in with a hammer, new ones back in with a hammer, and off we went. So, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting lesson to learn. One, the, 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 the gain, the Ubuntu of being helped on the side of the road twice. So that was good. But now I do know how to change a wheel bearing, so I'm happy with that. How far have you, like with the 40,000 kilometers, what have you done? You've done the, the Americas and where? So we did, so we went from British Columbia all the way down the west coast of, of the USA, all the way down to the bottom of the Baja in California, in Mexico, California, and then across to Mexico, across to the, not quite to the Yucatan because it was very hot there, but we went across to Belize through Belize, all the way down through Central America, so Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, which is where the volcano was, Costa Rica, and then Panama. And then when we got to the end of Panama, there's no road there. You can't get across the Darien Gap to Colombia. So you, the standard way of getting there is either to fly or to get on a boat. So we put the bikes on the deck of, a, of an old fishing trawler that had been turned into a sort of a touristy transit yacht if you like the star and sailed yeah although some people call it ludwig some people call it the star ruster or <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing oh, i don't experience. think stall rat is, is actually pre- uh, written out with r-a-t at the end but um yeah yeah well, it means yeah. it means steel it means steel rat in german so i think someone's having a joke but it used to be an old fishing boat, and yeah, frankly, I think there is still remnants of fish in there somewhere. <laughs> but that was that was great fun, and we got across to Colombia, and then we did Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and Chile, mm-hmm. halfway through Chile before the weather began to threaten us with a chilly weather. So and then we quit and came across to South Africa, and the bikes are well, actually, the bikes are in the shipping agent's backyard at the moment next to his swimming pool. So we're hoping that he's going to put them all in the, the, the crate and send them on for us. And um, you were in the Andes, I think, and you had a, an incident, you had dealt with a hailstorm? Mm-hmm. Yes, we were trying to go to a, a canyon. There's a canyon in Peru called Colca Canyon, which is very spectacular. And if anybody's in that area, I highly recommend it. It's twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. It's 3,420 meters deep, which is wow. pretty spectacular to look at. But in order to get there, you've got to go through this mountain range. And as we were on our way through, there was a downburst in temperature. The temperature plummeted and it started to rain. Rain turned to hail. Yeah, two and, degrees Celsius. And the next thing you know, we're stuck in the hail. So for some reason, there was a guy on the side of the road. I don't even know what he was doing there, so but there's some kind of testing station or roadworks or something. And he was just looking at us curiously, wondering what on earth these gringos were doing in this hailstorm. But we sat in his hut for a little while and put some warmer clothes on and decided that we'd have to abandon the bikes where they were and get a ride into town. So Morena hailed down this somewhat crazy local ambulance driver. Oh, so my, my, we were at the, an altitude of 4,300 meters and, you know, at two degrees Celsius with the howling wind. I mean, we were very quickly succumbing to um, hypothermia and, yeah, it was a case of what do we do? Do we stay on the bikes, keep them running with our, you know, electric jackets on? What do we do? 
long story short, decided to abandon the bikes and my job was to hail the next vehicle, which happened to be an ambulance. Well, I thought we were going to die in the ambulance. <laughs> never, mind the, never mind the hailstorm because I was lying on the stretcher and my, my um, extremities were aching from the cold. Paul was sat upright next to me with eyes the size of saucers and we could just hear the wheels screaming around those corners. And for anyone who's crossed the Andes, it's, it's switchbacks and hairpin bends and steep inclines. It's, it's, it's quite insane. So I said I wouldn't bungee jump. I wouldn't go on a Peruvian ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> and we saw a five-car pile up in the snow. Um, you know, it was, and I kept saying, uh, Senor, mas peligroso, you know, uh, sir, it's, it's very dangerous. And he just laughed, um, you know, like a raving lunatic and just carried on driving. So, he was on his phone. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, we lived to tell that tale, but um, we sort of became celebrities in the little town because by the morning news had spread that there were these bikers, you know, um, who got caught in the, the storm. And... Um, Again, you know, people were just incredible, helping us get back to the bikes once the weather had cleared, wanting to take photos with us, wanting to take photos of the bikes. And, you know, wherever we went in the little town, it was just, you know, um, we were like mini celebrities. Um, there were two vehicles turned up on their roofs. You know, it was, I was terrified. Um, but the lesson I took from that experience is that, we, we could work together very well in a crisis moment and we made decisions quickly enough um, and, and we just lived with the decision. Um, so, yeah, um, that was quite insane. <laughs> it's the reason we actually decided to put a can, to can our trip mid in the middle of Chile and come to Europe for the summer. We decided that the potential for going further south during the early winter period was was risky and then we didn't need to do it because as I alluded to earlier, you know, you're on your own journey. You don't need to go all the way down to the south and risk life and limb to get the picture of a penguin. So We really struggled with the altitude and, you know, crossing the Andes. Um, you know, the Andes started in, in Colombia and from the border into Ecuador, we started to really struggle with altitude. And I think you know, we were never really in a place long enough to to truly acclimatize. Um, you know, the, the highest we, we rode was 4,800 kilometers, ah, kilometers, meters. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it felt like kilometers. Um, and the highest we hiked was five, just over 5,000, which is more or less Everest Base Camp. And, uh, yeah, it, it didn't feel good. Um, and we just never felt like we were coping with the altitude. Um, so we pretty much had enough of, of being at altitude by the time we got to Santiago. It's knowing when to quit sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that we, we have realized is, you know, we joke about our journey as granny and grandpa's gap year <laughs> because we just... We're just out there to have some fun within the boundaries of risk that we are comfortable with. And, you know, 
I mean, it's wonderful what, what some people do and it, it's, it's incredible what some people do and what some people risk, but, but it's not us. Um, and we, we're okay with that and we've learned that along the way. Um, we've talked a lot to each other about, you know, what kind of risk am I comfortable with and what kind of risk is Paul comfortable with? And, you know, it's not always the same, which means we then have to talk it through and, you know, reach a compromise. But at the end of the day, for us, it's about having fun and staying safe. Um, and, you know, so far, so good. You've had your challenges with um, finding your way. I know you use a GPS, and, and the GPS has mm-hmm. actually been the, the source of your, your first arguments. That's right. So... <laughs> Just to talk about the using uh, using the GPS, and uh, I, I think you need to start. To be fair, you need to start at the fact that and Paul wasn't doing that well, was he? Marina, no, you were you were you were sort of jabbing at him, you know, <laughs> telling him that he just pointing things out. That's right. So Paul just looked at me and he said, "You answer this." <laughs> so <laughs> we had never argued until we started this journey, and um, I was quite taken aback. I mean, having my first argument and. Paul had jokingly said before we started this journey, it's either going to be the longest honeymoon or the shortest marriage. So (laughs) I've done everything in my power to make sure it's the longest honeymoon. But um, yeah, our arguments were just about getting lost. But what was happening? What do you mean about getting lost? So Paul's in charge. Paul's in charge. He's got the GPS and I'm following and I can read the road signs. And the GPS doesn't always... Uh, correlate with what the road signs are saying. So I would point this out and, you know, we'd have our argument. And And just drive off that way. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it reached a point where Paul said to me, why don't you have a go? Why don't you navigate? And I, I rose to the challenge. And at that point in time, we were staying in Washington State, in, in, in the United States, in a town called Longview, and we had planned a four-hour ride down to the coast, um, I think Prudhoe Bay or, or somewhere like that. And I said to Paul, no, GPS is no good. I'm going to look at a map, figure out where we're going, and we head off. So we knew the trip was going to take about four hours from Longview to where we were going. And I kid you not, it was about three hours, 58, and we were coming up this rise and... Paul said to me, so we have Senna intercoms, and in the intercom I can hear Paul saying to me, I'm in the lead. Oh, it's nearly four hours. We must be nearly there. And before I could even respond, we sort of crested the rise, and there was this big banner saying, welcome to Longview. (laughs) (laughs) The place you just left. (laughs) The place we had just left four hours ago. And I won't, I won't repeat on radio what Paul's words were. Well, I just, I was just floored. And needless to say, I do not offer to, to navigate anymore. (laughs) I said to Moraine, oh, why don't you have the navigator since you're clearly the expert? Whereupon later on, I realized that she's so short-sighted, she can't even read it anyway. So it turns out Morena couldn't have seen the, the GPS even if it was in front of her, so, which is another point I make quite periodically. Having said that, we did go somewhere else where the GPS took us down a, a, a dirt track and caused us to end up in farmland with no roads and 
took us three hours to do 20 kilometers in red, red clay, wet dirt and mud and just generally swearing. And, and many falls. <laughs> and many falls and what have you. So, I don't know, you just have to learn to use what, what tools you have and perhaps not rely on them so much, but, but, but also accept that they do get you to where you're going. Yeah, and with that um, particular experience that Paul was talking about, we kept thinking, you know, there's a, a bike has just come from the front, you know, a local on, on, on a little bike has just come along this road. It must be a road. And we've learned not to, <laughs> not to take that as a given that this is actually a road that can be uh, navigated with, with the big BMW, that's for sure. Couldn't even navigate with a goat. <laughs> <laughs> it always reminds me of uh, myself and my wife being on a trail and people were coming the other way and it was supposed to be a one-way trail. And I said, see, it can't be so bad. And just as we passed the last group of them, I realized, oh, they're turning around at the top <laughs> and we were going down. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, yeah. it was quite the thing. But but this this navigation experience that you guys had with the GPS, that, that sort of brought up um, uh, at least an answer to any time there's a conflict where, where Paul's trying to say, mm. you know, we have to go here. And so what happens mm. then? Well, the minute there's any arguments, he just looks at me and he says, Long view. <laughs> and then I just keep quiet. <laughs> it's just something you will never, ever live down now. Never. Never mm, forget. Because also, you know, I said, you, it does get you to where you're going, even if you disagree with it. And I did say to Moraine, like, in the end, you just have to pick one source of one source of truth, right? And you have to decide that you're going to follow it, whether you think it's right or you think it's wrong. Otherwise, you've got two sources of truth and at least one of them is going to be wrong, right? Mm. Mm. Technology, once we depend on it, or, or forget about it as a matter of fact, because you also had an experience with technology laying in a hammock in Belize. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, that, was, um, that was quite an interesting moment. Um, we uh, were at a dinner party recently and I was quite horrified that Paul told the story and I'm about to tell it on uh, radio. <laughs> Don't worry, but, um, <laughs> I won't tell anyone. You just go ahead. So we were in Belize and in the jungle, staying at a jungle lodge and it was insanely hot and we'd been swimming and I was wearing nothing except my sarong and I was lying in a hammock and we had a very private cabin in the jungle and um, I just have this mischievous streak that comes out every now and again. And um, I did a little, little bit of show and tell, you know, in a private moment with my husband. And um, we suddenly heard a member of staff approach and I covered up. And he walked straight past me, reached up to a security camera that was mounted on the deck above me in the hammock, which I didn't know was there. And to this day, we don't know if he was positioning the camera to see more or positioning it to see less. But um, when Paul told the story at the dinner party, uh, I mean, there was raucous laughter, but someone did say to me, you know you can't run for president, right? It's bound to come out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I mentioned. I saw the video on the internet and I thought, boy, that's oh. too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was just, we just could not believe it. We, uh, Although probably you can run for president now. That's probably mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, but you guys took some te technology with you as well. You took a drone and obviously you were hoping to capture lots of video. How did the drone work out? Oh, the drone's a long story. We took the drone with the best intentions that we were going to, you know, do some very rem 
what's the word, very romantic, if you like, shots of us riding the bike someplace. And, you know, like people do nice panoramic views of canyons and sunsets and stuff. So we thought, oh, well, that sounds like a great idea. The uh, We had some technical problems with the drone, which took took a little bit of time to work out with some batteries and other other such problems. But basically, we got the drone to work. I took the drone out and said, well, okay, let's, let's try this, our first panoramic shoot of following the bikes down the road. I fly the drone in the air and turn around and, well... The drone's still flying. The drone's gone. It flew off. (laughs) So your drone abandoned you. It did. It basically just turned around and went, yeah, stuff you, I'm out of here. (laughs) First opportunity to escape. And it was gone. And we spent a bit of time trying to find it. But, yeah, it's um, we lost it. So I didn't get to use it at all. Does it make you think differently about technology, about taking it? Because, I mean, everybody's doing this nowadays. We want to capture our trips and I do it too. You know, I'll take a camera with me, but I often find it's more of a pain in the butt to even bother trying to film anything um, than what you're getting out of it in the, in the long run. It sort of affects mm. your trip. We have two, we have conflicting views on this. Yeah. Like my, my view is that I see a lot of people standing behind their, their camera and just not taking in what they're doing you know they're they're just i mean i think a a classic is when you see people at rock concerts and they're recording the thing that they're there to see on the on a device and they're never going to play it back so not only have they missed the opportunity to be and enjoy where they were they've actually done and got and recorded something they're never going to see and so I'm a believer that an experience is more than just the moment you capture in time. It's all about how you feel, what you smell, what's going on around you. And so I'm sort of like, I don't want to take a picture. Of, I don't want to take a picture of something. I just want to sit and smell and enjoy and listen and all those things. Whereas Marina's mm. much more of a, a moment in time kind of one going to capture this moment because mm. if we don't, then we won't remember no, so. no, 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 no. So <laughs> we, 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 ha- more, we do differ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, photography is one of my, my main hobbies. And so as a photographer, to go to these incredible places, to see incredible faces. So portrait photography is, is really my, my main passion. And I, being able to capture beautiful faces or, or, you know, it's just, I keep saying to Paul, when, you're a, when you grow up and, and you're a photographer, you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we've, we've settled that, you know, we just have different views. But, you know, I, I do take what Paul says and there's a lot of truth in that because, you know, it, it, it is about being present um, in the moment. But for me, it is about capturing that as well. Um, and yeah. our, our home will be covered with magnificent photographs when we get back. I'm sure. None of the, none, no photographs taken by me though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. I rarely even carry this. I don't carry a camera around, so it's it's not something I do. I just watch with amusement as I as I see other people do it. 
But I, I can see the point, Marina, because what you're doing is you're not so much capturing the moment so you can post it on social media or, or, or show your friends. You're capturing the moment because that's an opportunity for you Absolutely. to capture an amazing yeah. photo. I mean, I mean, I get that. Yeah. But and also even for reflecting back, I mean, I know I have memories from when I was a kid that I think mm. are generated from the photos that I have of that time yeah. period and other things yeah. I completely forget. So so that's yeah. a valid point, too. I mean, there's a balance in there. Yeah. Yes. Well, we yeah. talk about the middle way. We talk about the middle way a lot. So the middle way is like, you know, not trying to push yourself from one extreme to another. You know, it's like, I'd like New Year's rev- resolutions where people say, I'm going to go on a diet this year. And uh, and they don't because they're not following the middle path. They're not saying, oh, well, I'll, I'll just go halfway along this journey because that will get me where I want to go without all of the, the pain and suffering that goes along with it. And... So yeah, I guess you might call it a compromise, but I just call it in the middle way, right? <laughs> and that's what you'd use for travel? Yes. Yeah, we, we try and always find the middle way because, you know, if, if you know, we, we've just learned doing anything in extremes, you know, so for example, we haven't been extreme with our budgeting, so we haven't gone extremely cheap and we haven't gone extremely over the top. Um, you know, that's just one example. Um, we try and find the middle road because it's, it's, it's probably more, um, more manageable or more feasible, it's less stressful, um, more likely to, to, you know, bring pleasure in the long run because um, extremes are just not, you know, easy to maintain in any way. Have you been camping or, or staying in hotels and things? A bit of everything. So we, we camped in the United States um, and we love camping. We, we love the outdoors. Um, we decided not to camp once we left the United States because we'd heard that accommodation was so cheap, you know, from Mexico down. Um, but we, you know, so we've we've camped, we've stayed in B&Bs, we've stayed in hostels, we've done couch surfing. We've we've had some Halpex experiences, you know, where we've worked for Board and Lodge. Um, slept on the floor. We've yeah, slept on the floor. We've slept on the deck of a ship. Um, you name it. Um, you know, it's it's been a, a bit of everything. Um, and um, yeah, so again, it's just the middle road. We haven't said okay, we're only doing this or we're only doing that. We've we've sort of done a little bit of everything. I think the main thing for us has been wherever we stay is making sure the bikes are safe. Um, and that's sort of been more our guide. Will the bikes be safe if we stay in X, Y, Z place? And you're not that fussed about the accommodations themselves? No, no. Tom as the shower's got water coming out. You stayed at a and b in Canada, I know, and you, um, you thought that that was rather special. Yeah, so as mentioned, uh, when we got to Canada, we had these great, grand ideas of, of, of getting to Alaska, and uh, our plans were scuppered by, by the, the ex, you know, extreme winter or snow um, heading north, so the roads were just not passable heading north, and so we ended up staying at a particular B&B um, for much longer than, than planned, and we were just hoping the weather would clear and uh, getting more and more despondent uh, by the day or, or by the week and um, until one day our host arrived with um, a really, really thoughtful gift, um, some homegrown weed 
beautifully rolled um, into a joint, um, sealed in some tin foil, um, and, and beautifully packaged in a little uh, matchbox with matches. And, um, you know, in, in his beautiful French accent, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whenever we're in a, a B&B or hotel and we see the chocolates on the pillow, we just shake our heads and we, we think back to that particular time in Canada and we think, Mm-mm, our hosts could do much better. <laughs> <laughs> that was certainly the most interesting um, a, a, a thing we'd ever been gifted by far. You mentioned getting more and more despondent there. And I was going to ask you, do you find travel itself stressful or is there an element of stress that you, you find while you're traveling? Not anymore. Mm. I don't. Mm. I, I, I would say yes, um, but it's not constant. You know, there are moments of stress. Um, one thing we learned is that if we have deadlines, we find them stressful. Um, would you agree, love? Yeah, I don't like the plans and the deadlines. Like just be just just roll by the days. What kind of deadlines? Oh, if you got a, a if you got to make, take a flight or you got to be in a certain place by a certain date. Or, or you've agreed to meet somebody, you know, on on you know, say, oh, let's meet up next Thursday at this place or something, and you're like. Oh well, now we've got to, you know, now we've got to arrange our time around, you know, making that that appointment, and it's like, I mean, you have to do that occasionally, but to try and avoid it creates less stress, I believe. You know, just turn and say, well, we'll be there, or we won't, or we've got to get a flight tomorrow. We'll just go to the airport and buy a ticket, right? So we, we've preferred to be more relaxed and, um, you know, less set in our ways. And, um, you know, we're quite protective now of not making too many plans. Um, but sure, there are stresses because, you know, things happen along the way, you know, hailstorms or, or earthquakes. So they, they are definitely stressful moments. Um, but we, we, we travel slowly. We, we try not to have extremely long days. Um, I think our longest day uh, was about 14 hours of riding, um, you know, crossing four borders in one day and riding at night. And we broke all our own rules, you know, on that particular occasion. So, you know, we learned that we, you can create stress by just how you plan to travel or, or, or don't plan to travel. So... We tend to get up early, ride for X number of hours, and then make sure we find accommodation with sufficient daylight hours so that if something was to happen, you know, we're not stuck in the dark, as an example. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much granny and grandpa's gap here. We, we don't look for, for stress. <laughs> you've said gap year several times now, but you're, you've already passed the year. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be gap years. Gap years, gap years yeah. But, or just uh, gap. <laughs> just gap, yeah. <laughs> do you find that there's a, um, do you have any difficulty um, not committing? You're, you're saying you, you try and commit less to meet someone or, or do those sorts of things. Does it not make you appear aloof to them? And how do you handle that? Um, we haven't really, uh, I think, I'm trying to think of some examples where, 
for example, we were traveling with some um, bikers who preferred to sleep late and travel late and, uh, um, you know, with all respect, had a number of um, days where they were running into trouble, getting lost in the dark, etc. And, you know, I, I respectfully said, hey, guys, we'll see you at point X or point Y. Our preference is to travel early. And I think... I think honesty goes a long way. You know, you need to be true to yourself without being disrespectful because I think uh, knowing myself, if I put myself through that of waiting for someone and then running into trouble, I think that would be more disrespectful overall. Um, I think it's just the way in which you communicate. And I think I think bikers know we're all different. We're all on. We're all on a similar journey, but we're all on our own journey. And you've got to understand what that means for yourself. And I believe you've got to be true to what that is for yourself. Um, otherwise, it's not fun for you, and I, I don't think it'll be fun for anyone else. Um, so I don't think. Well, I certainly hope that I, that we've never offended anyone. Um, and we've travelled with a number of different bikers at different times, and we've we've had amazing fun. Um, yeah, we're not going to meet them again anyway. Now you will for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So big lessons, big lessons that you've learned on this trip so far. Not to plan too much. That's my that's my main thing. Yeah. My main thing has been, you know. You don't have to. It's not like you have to be aloof to to and say to people, "Oh, look, you know, I'll be there if I if I feel like it." It's kind of like, you know, let's not overplan it. We're, we're, let's get together. Let's do this. Let's do that. If you're gonna take an aeroplane flight or somewhere, you don't need to go. I'm gonna plan step one, step two. You don't need to say, "Let's go to the airport. Let's get on a plane. Then the bus will be waiting for us. Then we got another flight. Then we're gonna be here. Then we're gonna be there. Then we're gonna meet somebody. Blah blah blah." Just do the first thing, you know, just get on the plane, go to the next place. And then when you get there, have a cup of coffee and go, right, I guess we better find a bus, right? It's, you, you know, that you can be that way, right? It doesn't suit everyone because lots of people like to plan. But I've realized that planning sort of like, I don't know, it takes a little bit, of, it takes a lot away from your journey, I think. I was saying to Morena earlier, I met a guy many years ago who would go on holiday by throwing a dart into the map of Australia. And he said that wherever the dart landed, he would just take his camper van and that's where he was going. And he did this and he would only do it a couple of days before he left. He would basically go, right, I'm leaving tomorrow. He throw the dart in there and that's where he'd go. And he told me he spent three weeks on a, on a station out in the middle of, of Australia with all these like ranch hands who wondered what on earth he was doing, turned up in his camper van and he said he had the best holiday of his life. Right? <laughs> Unplanned, unstructured, just go somewhere and see what happens. And, you know, I think to myself, you know, if I was working in a job and I said, hey, let's take two weeks off, where should we go? Like, you know, decide the day before, like pick a name, pick a country out of a hat and just go to the airport. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> It's, it seems like more fun, right? So that's what I learned. For me, it's um, the biggest lesson or the biggest aha moment for me is just one kilometer at a time. 
Um, if I think back to how I sobbed my heart out when Paul bought that massive bike and asked me to travel around the world um, to where I am now, you know, I, I remember meeting um, a, a beautiful uh, lady in, in the States who, who traveled on her own. And I said to her, how do you do that? You know, and she, she looked at me and she said, um, this was Claire. She looked at me, she said, Raina, one kilometer at a time. <laughs> and that has really stuck with me. And that's really resonated with me because, you know, one kilometer at a time, I've, I've put 40,000 on the clock. And, you know, it's a good feeling, but I, I will always carry that with me as, as a lesson for my life. Um, you know, it's, it's not just about motorcycling. It's just about whatever it is that we, you know, we look to do that seems impossible or, or seems really big. Um, a, you've got to start and then B, just one kilometer at a time, one step at a time. You planned a year. You're continuing on now past the year. Why? With me feeding the cookie monster. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, no, we just don't want to go home. <laughs> Too much fun. You don't want to go home. But have you guys changed? Are you are you different people now? Is that what's keeping you on the road? One thing I said about this kind of thing is I think it's possible to acknowledge that you know, you might go on a journey like this with an expectation that you're going to change. And I did say, or I did consider the possibility that you may actually go back and find yourself not changed at all, which would be a reflection of who you were before you left, right? So will we have changed? I think there'll be some fundamental, just some, some things that have changed about me in terms of how I see the world, I guess. But whether I'd be like enormously changed, I don't know. I think I'd probably just take what I've learned and apply it to, you know, the real world that everyone else lives in for the time being and see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, when we when we started to plan this journey, um, you know, one of my fears was, you know, I was, I was really happy in, in with the life we had. I was at a height of my career. You know, there was so much happening and I had a big fear of, how do I step away from something that I'm, I'm really happy with? And, um, you know, what if I'm on the road for a couple of weeks or months and I'm really unhappy? And, um, you know, so we, we had an agreement that if at any stage we were unhappy, we could come back. So if that was three months or six months, we could come back. It's not a failure. Um, and the opposite has actually happened where, we are having such a good time that we don't feel it's time yet. Um, time will come. Uh, Paul, Paul's daughter is having a baby, so our first grandchild is um, is on her way shortly. Congratulations, so Paul's daughter Charlotte. So um, it's tough being away at a time like this. You know, we can't share. You know, her her joy of 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 you know preparing for motherhood, and we can't you know, be there physically. So um, there, there is a big draw to go back um, and we don't know when that day will be. And I think, you know, we've, we've just learned to be open. That day might be next month where we say, hey, we, we want to go back. It may be, it may be another year, <laughs> maybe whatever. So I think we're quite loose 
in a way, we're quite loose with our planning. We're quite loose about for how long we want to travel. But that's the point, though, isn't it? Yeah. No plans. We don't have plans. If you said we're going to go back in six months, that will just mess up the next six months. You know, if you said, oh, I'm going to go home, I've booked an aeroplane ticket to leave on the, I don't know, the 7th of October or something, then your whole life would be fixated around that moment and then you'd have to back plan and go, okay, well, we've got six months, let's go here, let's go there, let's rush this, let's mm. do that. It's like, you know, you asked me whether I'd learned anything or whether I changed. Well, one of the things I've changed is I'm not going to do that, right? So mm. it's like the day will come when the day is tomorrow, like, mm. And whenever that occurs, I guess. We'll wake up to that day. And, you know, one thing we are able to do is be be brutally honest with each other. Um, and it, uh, it may not be the same for, for us, you know, at that moment in time, but it hasn't happened yet. So who knows? When Paul's leading with the GPS and you you know that you know a better way and Paul knows you're wrong how do you how do you start out your arguments do you have a way of dealing with that uh, i just yeah. keep quiet now i just think about long view <laughs> 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 we don't argue that anymore. Well, I, I'm using that just as a metaphor, but I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, in general for arguments, I mean, because it's tough traveling as a couple. I mean, I know that. Yeah. And you, you're, yeah. you're with each other all the time. All the stress is on the both of you. And and you tend to lash out at the ones you love because you're you're confident that they're going well, to be maybe, there no matter how you act. It's possible that, um, you know, I'm just thinking about the, the, you know, you ask about change and about how you reflect on things. It may well be that it's possible that the GPS was just a focal point for stresses of initially trying to go out and doing something crazy like this, or whether we would have had stresses learning about each other's characters and understanding how we deal with stress points and things like that. And it may well be less to do with the GPS and more just to do with the evolution of our relationship. And And we have a good strategy. Yeah, you just agree with me. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, sorry to interrupt. We have a very good strategy, and it's actually a strategy that Paul um, uh, created, and um, it goes like this. Whenever you really irritate me, I just focus on all the things I really, really, really love about you, and then it's okay. <laughs> well, that's good. I and like that. Right. <laughs> so I like when you that. interrupt me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I think that the truth is we've probably grown uh, more accustomed to each other, which I think is a good thing because it allows us to, you know, there are things, there are always things about people that that get under your skin. It's just the nature of humanity, right? And I think if you don't have the opportunity to to fully confront and explore those things, then there's a good possibility they'll just chew away at you for all the time that you're in a relationship. So I think it's good that you can argue and you can be pulled up and called to account with your character flaws and allow yourself the opportunity to be called out, I guess, because that's a growing experience. You know, sometimes Morena's in traffic now and she's yelling expletives at the drivers and I'm like, just don't have a care in the world and I don't know what the problem is. And there would have been a time where, where I might have got somewhat agitated by the mood that she was in. Now I just ignore her. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that's because she wants me to ignore her. I just go, she's a big girl. She'll work it out for herself. Yeah, we've certainly learned so much about each other and and we've learned so much about ourselves, you know, and um, 
I'm, I'm just grateful that we've created a safe space in, in which that can all happen because, yeah, it, it's tough being together 24-7 uh, for more than 365 days now. <laughs> yeah, sounds sounds really long when you yeah. say that. You're sitting in South Africa now. What's the plans? We're leaving in a couple of days, going to Madrid. We've been here for about a month, so Rainy's been taking me around, showing me all of her, her friends. We've been drinking a lot of wine and eating too much barbecue food. And uh, I've been shown lions and elephants and other such African things. And now there's a paella and some flamenco with my name on it. Yeah, so we, f- we fly out to Madrid um, uh, the day after tomorrow and our motorcycles will join us there and we continue our journey. So um, th- all we know is we want to head towards Morocco um, and try and yeah get the best of Morocco while the weather, before the weather gets too hot and then, you know, the rest of Europe for summer. Beyond that, we don't know. What um, advice or maybe I should say tips would you have for other people considering a trip? Don't um, pack too much just in case stuff because <laughs> I think there is a the, the, I think people tend to think that we don't live in a world where you can't just buy things on the corner store. Mm. You know, like you know, somebody said to me, and I had a toolkit. And uh, somebody said to me, you know, there's nothing on that bike you can fix with that toolkit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like uh, if the motor stops, you can't fix anything with an Allen key and, and a smile, right? And I was thinking, yeah, okay, so now I'm carrying two kilos of, of toolkit that simply serves no purpose. And even if I did need a spanner for something, I'd ride 50 meters in any direction in any country and probably find someone who can get me a spanner. You know, like it, I, I think that's the tip. It's like try and be as lightweight as you can. I mean, Absolutely. I hardly wear any clothes and Morena is always nagging me because I've got one pair of pants and I love to wear these pants all the time and I don't really care <laughs> if they get a bit dirty, but I get nagged to have to take them off and wash them. <laughs> So what do you do? You stand with a towel wrapped around you in the laundromat while you're washing your pants? Pretty much. (laughs) Wash them in the shower. Yeah. That's exactly what I do, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would second Paul's advice. You know, we we did pack way too much. And, um, you know, Bear Grylls and MacGyver and all those guys, you know, none of that actually happens in in real life. Um, So we don't need to emulate them and, and expect you know, major catastrophe around every corner and have every single piece of equipment or tool or whatever. Um, yeah, and the world is a very, very small place. Um, it, it's it's a tiny, tiny place. It's not a big, dangerous place at all. Um, you know, people are close by, help is close by. Um, I'd say that's probably the best advice we could give is, is don't pack too much. Marina, Paul, thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's been awesome. All best.
That was Paul Nibs and Marina Matthews, uh, sort of in the middle of their adventure. And if you want to follow their adventures, drop by our website and check the show notes for this episode. Their website is a little difficult to just say, um, but you can get the link there. The episode is called Just Say Yes, What Better Way to Travel the World? I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you for being a part of this. You can download all of our shows for free. Just drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and uh, all the episodes for this show and our Raw show, which is a, a, a show you subscribe separately to, are all available there. And as well, I've mentioned before, we're doing transcripts, have been since uh, January of this year. So if you're interested in something we've talked about, you want to read about it, drop by the website and read the transcript. It'd be nice, you know, drop us a note, let us know what you think about that. Are you using the transcript? Does it work for you? Is it something that you feel you need? That's always interesting information to get back from you. Anyway, it's time to get out there now and, and ride your bike. And, and of course, before I let you go, I just love to encourage you to drop by the website and click on the support button. If you love what, you, what we're doing here, we uh, have it as built on a model of a mix of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. So anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent at you. Uh, anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. But our patron uh, system that we have set up as well is for a monthly donation. You can put any amount, a dollar, $5, $20, whatever you want to do. And that way we get regular monthly support. We, we just love it if you'd consider doing that. Um, If not, no worries. The show is still going to be here for you. Um, Thank you very much. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hi, I'm Sterling Noreen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 